most of my career, I've speculated when and where there would be an escalation of physical war into the virtual world, a cyber war. And there's been a fair amount of hyperbole, such as Richard Clark's famous Digital Pearl Harbor statement, that there would be one clear moment when this would happen. Contrasting that is perhaps the more nuanced statement from Howard Schmidt, President Obama's first cybersecurity czar, who said, We see people talking about the digital Pearl Harbor from worms and Trojans and viruses. But in all probability, there's more likelihood of what we call a backhoe attack that could have more impact on a region than Code Red or anything we've seen so far. What Schmidt was referring to was an incident when a common backhoe severed a strategic sprint communications line in the United States. That event did more damage than any computer virus or worm at the time. I think that event leaves open yet another possibility, that perhaps we've had many little digital Pearl Harbors already, such as the massive denial-of-service attack against Estonia, but we didn't realize it at the time. Here's the International Center for Defense and Security. In 2007, a struggle over a divisive Soviet statue set the standard for a new form of Russian interference in the affairs of foreign states. Plans to move the bronze soldier in Tallinn led to riots, outrage, and the first cyber attack ever attempted on an entire nation state. But the full story of the bronze soldier affair is only becoming clear now, 13 years later. New research has connected the dots to reveal how these events formed part of a new style of coordinated interference in which misinformation and manipulation were used by Russia to stoke division. It should have been a wake-up call for the rest of the world, but most of us failed to listen. When I covered Estonia in 2007, it felt like something important, and yet we didn't realize it as such. And Over the next decade, Russia continued to experiment with online attacks in various countries, both state-sponsored and private. We've certainly seen, over that time, the rise of online criminal extortion gangs. Right now, though, we're experiencing another series of online attacks that aren't necessarily making the headlines. That is in part because the attacked country, Ukraine, is largely holding its own. While that's good, it's not news. But perhaps it should be. While this isn't the digital Pearl Harbor that Richard Clark dreamed of, it nonetheless feels like a significant milestone. And in a moment, I'll talk with somebody who is actively working with the European Union to defend Ukraine today. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm celebrating two years of podcasting, and it's also the 50th episode, so I'm going big. I'm talking about cybercrime unicorns, about the fog of cyber war among nation states, and about a new book I think will be on the shelves of most information security professionals later this summer. The 
The slogan of the RSA conference is Where the World Talks Security. And in general, I find it's an opportunity for someone like me who is states-bound most of the time to interact with people from around the world. Like in 2008, when I presented at RSAC with Chris Void from the UK on the rise of teenage hackers. RSAC also attracts some of the top researchers in InfoSec. You know, the handful of people, if you say their name, people will instantly know them. I'm talking about someone in particular who has done TED Talks as well as Black Hat and numerous other InfoSec conferences. My name is Mikko Hyppanen. I am the Chief Research Officer for WitSecure and I do live in Helsinki, Finland. That last part might seem extraneous, unnecessary. It's not. When I last saw Mikko in person, we were both presenting at the Nordic IT conference in Stockholm, Sweden, and we shared a cab ride over and that's when he told me about a Finnish prank back in 1961. At that time, the Swedes had rediscovered and began to salvage the Vasa warship. This was a massive wooden warship that, on its maiden voyage in 1628, sunk. When it was time to lift the boat from the bottom of the water, Swedish divers also found a statue of a 20th century Finnish Olympian runner. That statue, it seems, had been placed on the ship as a prank by some students by the Helsinki University of Technology the night before. This speaks to both the playful rivalry between Sweden and Finland, and also a better understanding of the Finnish humor which will become apparent along with Miko's deep pride for Helsinki. Yeah, I don't know if it's important, but uh, Helsinki is a beautiful, beautiful city in a beautiful country. And we are living in a, well, I'm living in a country which has a very long neighbor. And right now, I think that's relevant to our world as well. His neighbor to the east, Russia, has come up before. Fifteen years ago, when I was still at CNET, I met up with Miko at DEFCON when it was still held at the Alexis Park Hotel, just off the Las Vegas Strip. Miko pulled me aside into the hot August parking lot under a blazing Nevada sun. Miko had read some of my reporting on Netski, which was Skynet backwards a virus that was also known as Sasser. It was a typical virus of the day back in 2005. In some ways, it's a cute story. Sven Yaskan, then 19, was found guilty of creating the Netsky virus. Yaskan lived in the village of Waffesten, Germany, where he lived with his dad, a computer repair person in town. Yaskan said he created the virus in order for people to bring their infected machines to his dad's repair shop. And then it got out of hand. The thing is, I never really bought that official story, although I reported it at CNET. I had suggested that Yaskan might not have been the sole creator of Netsky. There were ample clues that someone else, someone with greater skill, had contributed at least some of the code. Perhaps Yaskan had merely mutated it. But something still didn't feel right about that either. Miko reading this on CNET, pulled me aside at DEFCON and warned me directly. He suggested I back off and leave the speculation about the Russian Business Network, a group at the time responsible for many online attacks, to Europool. They're better equipped to handle it, he said, and I remember Miko adding quite clearly, hey, I live not too far from these guys. You don't want anything to do with them. Right. Yeah, I still live not too far away from, from those guys, although the old Russian business network probably is 
long gone and replaced with much bigger players. That said, 10 years ago, we'd hear about an attack every other day. That's not the case today. Does that mean that we are losing ground in online security? Miko would disagree. We've never been in a better shape regarding cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is doing great. And I know it doesn't look like that, but it is. The problem we have is that we only see the failures. I mean, it's not news when something doesn't happen. It is news when something happens. So if a company doesn't get hacked, no one knows. If a company gets hacked, it's headline news. So this creates this illusion that everything is is going to hell and and cybersecurity is just full of failures and companies are getting hacked left and right. The fact of the matter is that cybersecurity systems have never been better. The security of our workstations, our servers, our cloud instances, our mobile devices has never been better. If you compare the level of security we have today and 10 years ago, it really is like night and day. And and, and we should embrace that, understand that and, and, and try to spread the upside of of this industry, that we are getting better, we are securing our systems better. It's just not very obvious, but it's true. So this is an example of what's news and what's not. There's that old truism in journalism, dog bites man, not news. But man bites dog, now that's news. The fact that we're securing more networks today and that we're beating away the bad actors, that's really not news. It's only when we fail, that's when we get the big headlines. When an IT team at a large company heroically works through the night to patch every single server against the new vulnerability which has been found and they finish by 7 a.m. just in time to prevent someone who's scanning their network to find vulnerable machines at 8 a.m., no one's going to know. No one will pay attention. Nothing happened. And rarely is anyone thanked for preventing a disaster which didn't happen. I can guarantee to you that Washington Post or New York Times will not have a headline tomorrow saying that the second largest company in USA was not hacked yesterday. That's not news. So we only see the failures. I, I, in my book, I use the term security Tetris, because in Tetris you're trying to make a whole line, or actually four whole lines. That's a Tetris when you make four whole lines at the same time. And when you succeed with what you're trying to do, the line disappears. So your successes disappear and your failures pile up. That's what we're doing in security as well. So let's talk about these bigger players in computer crime. These are not groups of individual criminal hackers sitting around the table late at night as it was in the early days of malware writing. Today, these are fairly large criminal enterprises, and they just don't attack desktops now, they're attacking mobile devices as well. I remember meeting Miko in 2006 at the RSA conference that was held in San Jose, California. It was there that Miko first showed me his collection of mobile phone viruses on his tiny Nokia phone. These early mobile viruses weren't monetized, They were still just proof of concepts. But by then, the desktop viruses, they were starting to be monetized. The original seed chains for monetizing malware was 2003. That's when we started seeing the cooperation between spammers and malware writers. So botnet authors would take over a large amount of computers and sell them to spammers who would use those home computers to send spam emails. Then we've seen all these big waves after that. Banking Trojans 
credit card keyloggers, um, botnet building, but clearly for the last eight years now, ransom, ransomware in various different incarna incarnations has been the big moneymaker. Ransomware is profitable today. Criminal organizations that launch these attacks, like Conti and R-Evil, are making millions of dollars by analyzing the organizations they go after first and finding the right ransom for each. Five years ago, I started thinking that these guys are making so much money that eventually we'll have to start to call them unicorns. And it was sort of like a joke initially, like cybercrime unicorns, like really? But it's not funny anymore. They really do exist nowadays. We have really wealthy, really quickly growing, completely criminal organizations, and we should be calling them unicorns. Okay, cybercrime unicorns is catchy and appropriate. However, the concept of organizations of criminals online has existed before. I mean, we had criminals who were wealthy, and perhaps you've seen the images in the early 2000s of Russian criminals with the bling-bling, the gold teeth, and the fancy sports cars on Facebook. These are individuals who, whether they were in Russia or Brazil or wherever in the world, were incredibly wealthy from their enterprises, and therefore direct targets of the FBI and Europol. What has changed is that they've made this less of the individual and more of an enterprise. And so we have these faceless ransomware groups. I think the big shift has been around ransomware groups going after the biggest possible targets. Initially, ransomware was targeting home users. Encrypt your holiday pictures, pay us 200 bucks to get your pictures back. That was the premise of the original ransom, ransomware. Today, it's much more likely that the group spends extended amount of time and maybe even buys access to gain access to a corporate network and might be there for weeks for lateral movement because they know that they, they can be asking for a million dollars or $10 million for ransom, so it pays off. And if you're building that kind of operations, it has to be run professionally. But in order to make money, you have to spend some money. There has to be some investment. And that's why we now see these groups which run their own data centers, have their own IT support, have their own HR department, hire lawyers, hire business analysts. And it's kind of clever to hire business analysts for a ransomware gang, because if you want to really know how much money you should be asking, steal the financial records of the victim company and give them to your own analyst, who will be able to tell you that we should be asking them exactly this amount of money. This is what they can pay us tomorrow. So. Before, it was all about stealth. You didn't want to be identified as the one writing the malware. You didn't want to be called out or whatnot. It sounds like there's a lot more overhead with these cybercrime unicorns because they have to employ so many people on their payroll. In many cases, as long as you don't criminally hack a player at home, the nation state doesn't care. Even better, they need a good brand. These, these groups are doing branding. They have logos, they have names. I mean, this is why you know R-Evil by name. This is why you know Conti by name. I mean, they need a reputation, a scary reputation, a reputation that people are, are worried about. Like, you can imagine that you realize that, oh my God, we've been hacked. Oh my God, it's ransomware. Oh my God, it's R-Evil. Like, I know these guys, I've read about these guys. This is serious stuff. And, and that's the kind of reputation. They, they want a reputation that they're scary, but fair. That if you pay the ransom, you will get your files back. So they, they do branding. And, and, and that's why they have websites. That's why they have logos. And that's also, you know, part of the professional operations they run. 
We've seen organizations purposely brand themselves as scary before. Terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they branded themselves as scary. And the way the United States and others brought those scary organizations to justice was to offer rewards for information to their capture. And it wasn't just a few thousand dollars here and there. It was on the level of millions of dollars. So in malware, we actually did start out at the smaller level. In 2005, Microsoft offered $250,000 to someone coming forward with information on the Netsky attack, which I mentioned before. And it, it turns out that the kid's friends actually turned him in and collectively shared that $250,000 bounty. This, however, is on a much larger level, millions of dollars. This is, it's now the same amount of reward that the Reward for Justice program is offering for terrorists. So U.S. government is taking cyber criminals now as seriously as a threat as they take terrorism. So in early 2022, that was when members of ReEvil were arrested in Russia. In Russia. This was a positive change, and one that perhaps we thought might continue. We had a bright moment in malware history, starting from October 2021. And I call this the cybercrime unicorn hunting season. After summer of 2021, um, JBS, Continental Pipeline, Colonial Pipeline, all these big cases, attitudes started changing, especially in U.S. government, especially in State Department, especially in the Rewards for Justice program, and they started issuing these $10 million rewards for hacking groups, especially ransomware groups. And I love the money, rewards for, for information leading to arrest of cyber criminals. And that really started the, the biggest uh, row of arrests in, in, against cybercrime gangs in countries where we typically don't see arrests happening, including Russia, including Belarus, including Kazakhstan, Czech Republic, Poland, Ukraine as well. And all of that pretty much ground to halt when Ukraine was invaded in February. So we had this slight window when, when everything started looking really good, that, you know, these groups were getting paranoid and, and, and these group members were seeing that there's bounty on their head. And then they realized that if they rat their friends, their friends will go to jail, but they won't. They will get immunity for prosecution and, and they will get $10 million. And it becomes like a game theory that, oh, hold, hold on, all my friends know this as well. So the first one to rat everyone else gets, you know, gets to walk away and everyone else will go to jail. I should rat my friends before they rat me. And that's exactly the kind of like mind games we should be playing on cyber criminals. Throughout our conversation, Miko kept returning to the subject of Ukraine. And why not? At the time of this podcast, the country is holding its own online against Russia. In contrast, the physical toll on the Ukrainian population has been staggering, with thousands of civilians killed in attacks in apartment buildings and shopping malls. This clearly rises to the level of international war crimes. Not so much in the news, however, are the thousands of Ukrainian information security professionals who are fighting daily to keep their country safe and keep critical services up and running. 
Here's the BBC. Well, as Ukraine's military battles Russian troops on the ground, there's another battle taking place. It's in the digital realm. Ukraine's cybersecurity authority says the cyber conflict with Russia is unprecedented, describing it as the world's first hybrid war. Russia has been actively using disinformation to wage an information war against Ukraine. But now Ukraine is fighting back uh, with the digital minister, Mikhail Fedorov, leading the front by using social media to rally international support against Russia. So let's go live to Kyiv. We can speak to Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation, Alex Bornyakov. Good to see you, Alex. Thank you for taking the time. Tell us how you are fighting this war in the digital realm. Hi, all. Thank you for um, this opportunity. So, uh, yeah, there, we think that uh, digital is, is an important part of this war as we fighting uh, as, as the fighting on the ground. Uh, digital technologies are the main tool for achieving our goals. Now, this is a sort of weapon. And um, uh, Russia was attacking attacking our infrastructure for not just recently, two weeks ago, starting from two weeks ago. They were attacking us for eight years. And uh, I would say that we kind of became immune to them. So we we successfully defend their, our uh, digital infrastructure. At this point, um, we created an IT army, which consists of 300,000 people who voluntarily joined this effort uh, in order to, first of all, fight with their propaganda, fight with disinformation, and, and reach out to Russian people and say what exactly happening in Ukraine, what's the real situation, also to disrupt digital infrastructure of Russia, um, because we think that uh, they have to feel what we feel all these years and 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 uh, uh, they being kept in some sort of a bubble in, in Russia. But now with this, all the sanctions, with all our efforts, I think they became, become to, they start to realize uh, that this also concerns them. They also involves all the people in Russia. I don't want to over exaggerate the importance of cyber in Ukraine, because the fact is that the real tragedies and the real deaths are happening in the real world. Having said that, we're seeing more activity in, in nation-state cyber than ever before. Um, Ukraine is seeing three times the activity they saw a year ago. So it's, it's, there's tons of things Russians are trying to do, trying and failing. It's interesting to see that Russia is failing just not like they're failing with their real-world attacks. Everybody's surprised how poorly they've waged the war in real-world. They're failing in online as well. And they're failing in both for the same reason. Ukraine is pretty damn good in defending themselves. They're defending themselves in the real world, and they're defending themselves in the online world as well. I would claim that Ukraine is the best country in Europe in defending themselves against Russian cyber attacks. They're very good because they've been doing it for eight years. Ukraine has been an experimental online playground for Russia for years. Perhaps the most famous of these experimental attacks was not Petya, a ransomware attack that coincided with attacks filing software used by every Ukrainian. Here's the thing. International businesses with interests in the Ukraine, they all use the same software. So not only were computers within Ukraine affected, but computers around the world were infected as well. This was a very public attack, infecting shipping lines and transit systems in other countries. But 
there were other, smaller attacks. For example, there was a target placed upon the Ukrainian electrical grid in the dead of winter. which was the electricity grid. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you look at other countries, not just Europe, the whole world, basically. Um, but if I'm looking at from the European point of view, because I work with European governments and European militaries as well, everyone else is is like playing war games and tabletop exercises and theoretical scenarios, what what Russia could do. Um, I know, I, I'm in the Finnish reserves myself. This is what we do when I go back to military refreshers. That's not what the Ukrainians do. They defend against real attacks every day, day in, day out. Russia is throwing their stuff at them and they find it and they neutralize it. And Ukraine has a hard time defending their infrastructure. It's a big country, 44 million people with a lot of... I mean, it's not a very rich country, so they, they have a lot of legacy systems, old hardware, old software, which makes it hard to defend. But they're defending amazingly well. Of course, they have a lot of help from the outside now. And it's quite interesting how we've never before seen anything like this. We're seeing Western technology companies actively participating in defending a nation in a war against foreign cyber attacks. This is interesting. You have large companies with offices in both Ukraine and Russia having to take sides. Last week I I met the uh, uh, director for Microsoft's Digital Crime Units Europe and I asked her, well, first I thanked her, like, thanks for your work. Thank you for standing with Ukraine. Great. But why? Like, why are you doing it? And the answer she had was very simple. She told me that they have customers and clients in Ukraine, like Ukrainian ministries and enterprises. So they're defending their clients. That's the answer. And obviously, that's not the whole story. Like, sure, that's true. Then again, Microsoft has tons of customers in Russia as well, and they choose to do this for Ukraine. Um, So they're not giving out the full justification for it. But uh, I'm glad they are there, just like Google is there as well, and many of the big technology companies that, that, that we know. And given there's a land war going on between the two nations, are the online attacks coordinated with the government's best interests in mind? Or are these patriotic online criminals? Perhaps a little of both. Right. Yep, there's plenty of activity from Russian cyber criminals and just Russian civilians who want to use their skills to defend the homeland and revenge these un unjustified sanctions from the West somehow. So there's plenty of activity. I've been speaking about the fog of the cyber war because there's so many attacks coming from different players. It's hard to build a full picture, but it also opens up opportunities. Yes, the fog of war is a pretty convenient term. I mean, in theory, if you wanted to criminally hack into Russia, right now might be the opportunity. For example, Western governments and intelligence agencies and militaries who otherwise wouldn't dare to target Russian targets might now have a chance because they can do pretty much anything they want against Russia and if they get caught they can just claim it's the anonymous or whoever because there's so many attacks going on against Russia anyway. It's also interesting to think that Russia might be focusing all of its efforts on Ukraine and not necessarily going after the allies of Ukraine. That's not true. There are attacks on Western allies happening as well. So far, we've, the attacks we've seen elsewhere, um, for example, in Europe, for example, in Finland, we've seen attacks, but they've clearly been, or my estimate is that they're civilians, like hacktivists or Russian crime gangs. 
Uh, for example, in, in Finland, we've seen the largest banks and uh, Ministry of Defense getting attacked. So attacks like denial of service attacks, nothing too serious. And it, they don't have the hallmarks of, of Russian governmental activity. So I do believe Russian government, Russian military is, is targeting Ukraine and focusing on re Ukraine only on, on right now. But I would be surprised if there would be no retaliation of any kind in cyber from Russia um, after Finland and Sweden applied for NATO. There's been nothing so far, but you, you would think they would do something. And uh, they haven't done anything yet. I think they will. Okay, so there seems to be a deliberate political element behind the sea change. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And, and politicians do realize the importance of this. And that's also been fascinating to watch. You and me remember the time when politicians were ignoring the internet. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what's so important about it. Today, they all understand very well how important it is to control the internet and use internet wisely. Internet is where elections are won and lost. Internet is how you control your people, how you how you see the, the changes in, in, in people's opinions. So they, they, they do want to like, defend the internet as well. And this is an example of that happening uh, from, from the political point of view. So in the past, when Estonia was attacked, there was a level of cooperation. They even opened an international office in association with NATO. Here's NATO TV. In 2007, Estonia suffered cyber attacks. The government, media and banks were targeted. A year later, the Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence, in cooperation with NATO, was opened in Tallinn in North Estonia. Eight nations contribute to it – Germany, Spain, Estonia, Italy, Lithuania, Latvia, Slovakia and Hungary, which joined recently. Here researchers are working to optimise the protection of computer servers. Cyber defence strategy and research are at the heart of this cooperation between Alliance member states. But over the years, there really wasn't much activity reported out of the Center for Excellence. It wasn't actively quite on the level of what we see today with the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, and other organizations joining to help Ukraine. Not, not on this level, but it was so new back then. That was 15 years ago, so this is it's a different ballgame. But I'm, you mentioned CISA. I'm really happy to see the kind of leadership CISA has been showing worldwide. It's, it's really important that uh, USA has been like clearly giving the kind of guidance um, around critical infrastructure, which should really be given everywhere. And we also have to give credit to US intelligence for calling the Ukraine crisis correctly way before anyone else did. Like US and UK intelligence, was, they were telling the world already in December that it's going to happen. We just didn't believe them, and they were right. Another thing I think has been different is that in the lead up to the 2022 Ukraine war, President Biden ordered the intelligence community to share a lot of intel, in part to prep the world and in part to unmask some of the stuff that was going on out of sight. CISA has become much more high profile and clearly tackling exactly the right problems. The challenge all countries have is that infrastructure and critical infrastructure is no longer in the hands of the government. It's private companies and you need public-private partnerships. You need private companies to take their responsibility for defending the nation. And that's 
at a completely different level in different countries. Um, and it still requires a lot of work to be done. But I think we're going to the right direction. So what's interesting listening to Miko is his perspective as a non-U.S. resident. I mean, I'm in the States, so I see and hear the American perspective. And I do admit that we had four years where we had a president that didn't understand or didn't even care about cybercrime and didn't really care about threats coming from Russia. Now we have President Biden. So I have to wonder if Miko sees it as night and day between the two presidents, if he'd agree that the United States presence in cyberspace really is important, or is the U.S. just another major player among other major players? The United States is the leader in many respects in, in cybersecurity, in, in cyber things to begin with. Of course, all the big players, all the big Operating systems, clouds, and search engines are coming from U.S.-based companies. So they, you're seen as a leader in this field, almost regrettably often, because, you know, we, we like to think the web was invented in Europe, yet most of the websites I visit are from USA, which is weird, but that's just the way it is. But I'm seeing a lot of things happening in USA regarding uh, defense of critical infrastructure um, happening over the last two years, three years, which I like. And, and that's, that's the kind of developments we hope will continue in the future as well. we'll, we'll I guess it's going to depend who's, who the next president will be. Fun fact, Miko has more or less worked at the same company for the last 30 years. I say more or less because that company has changed names several times. At the time of this recording at RSAC in mid-June 2022, the company is still known as WithSecure. It had not yet spun out its former name, FSecure, as a separate company. That occurred on July 1st, 2022. So I joined a company in 1991 called Datafellows, which then later renamed itself in 1999 to FSecure. We actually had a product called FSecure and we renamed the company to one of our products. This year, in March, March 2022, we renamed F-Secure to WithSecure. So everybody right now is working at WithSecure. And we're going to spin out or do a demerger in July, or actually end of June, for a new company, which is going to be called F-Secure. So in effect, F-Secure splitting into WithSecure and F-Secure. And this is going to be the consumer side and the enterprise side. F-Secure, which has the better known brand, is going to be the consumer brand providing our VPN, uh, mobile VPN solutions, our endpoint protection, our antivirus systems for home users. And then WithSecure provides consulting and enterprise software for companies and governments and enterprises. I'll be on the WithSecure side myself. Certainly enterprise is more interesting side to be on, I would think. In reality, Miko is chief research officer with WithSecure and a research advisor with FSecure now that they are legally distinct publicly traded companies. I would think, though, that it would have been an obvious choice for him. Oh, it wasn't that obvious to me. I did ponder it through, but I do think it's the right side for me. And I just started my 31st year with the company, which has now renamed itself and split itself a couple of times, but... It is still the same company I joined. I haven't had a boring day yet. Given this proud history with this company, 
I can only imagine Miko still has his data fellow pass somewhere. I'm sure I have some old badge somewhere, but uh, I, uh, I, 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 I'm a wit secure guy nowadays. I'm already familiar with the, with the name myself. And after many years of giving talks, giving TED Talks even, it's interesting to note that Miko hadn't yet written a book. Well, there's one coming out later this year. And I asked him, what took him so long? Oh, that's easy. It's a pandemic. <laughs> I've been trying to write a book forever uh, while doing fun 140 flights a year. It's hard. Writing on planes and lounges and hotels wasn't going anywhere. But then I had no excuses when the pandemic hit, and I'm actually happy about that. I worked eight months, I had a deadline every Friday, and now it's ready, coming out in August from Wiley. And the title of the book is that if it's smart, it's vulnerable, which is the Hoopenen Law, which I coined a couple of years ago. The Hoopenen Law states that whenever an appliance is described as being smart, it is vulnerable. And this sounds like it might only apply to IoT devices, but it's more than that, which the book covers. Yeah, the book isn't just about IoT. IoT is, of course, covered there. But then I'm also talking about the big trends, trends that we've gone through over the last 30 years. Like what brought us where we are today? How is this big digital revolution around us is, is, is changing us as a species? And what's going to happen next? Uh, where are we headed? And I speak a lot about the death of privacy. I speak a lot about cyber war, uh, nation states. I had some time to put in a little bit about Ukraine as well. The deadline of the book was end of February. Ukraine war started on 24th, so I had six days to get some of that in as well. I'm happy I had a chance to do that as well. So it's, uh, it's, um, it's been great to actually work with professionals who know how to actually build a book out of, out of, uh, you know, out of my, uh, my work that I've been doing for 30 years now. The book will be out in the United States in August, in time for its launch at Black Hat USA in Las Vegas. It's, uh, it's, it's really good to have it come out. And uh, I actually, it, it's already been published in Finnish, in Finland, but it's now coming out internationally and uh, maybe even other languages as well. So given that the book is coming out soon, is there anything else we should know in advance? The price of the book. And I don't know, actually, no, I don't have an answer for that. I hope it's really expensive. And Miko wouldn't let it alone. In addition to the price, we also digressed about the cover, the cover of the forthcoming book. Right. Well, you see it in front of you. It's the it's a picture of me with a uh, like a I, I, would this be a matrix effect or something like this? It's a profile. I don't know. We were working with Wiley, the publisher, for something that would work, and I like like this. So. Yep. That's that's the project. That's the big project for me for for, for this year. I'm happy it's uh, coming out now. So now that his book is finally being published, what has Miko been doing with his free time? Well, for the last three months, I've done nothing except Ukraine. I've, I've, every week I'm sitting in meetings with uh, people in Lviv or Kyiv or wherever, and uh, we're doing our part to support them. I, I, I was giving a talk to Ukrainian members of the IT army last month, and I finished my talk by telling them, because I, I wanted to give them hope. The, the little hope I could give. But nevertheless, to show support. And I told them that, you know, this war will be over. One day, this war will be over. And when the war is over, we, like the West, will be there. We, we want to 
support you. We want to work with you. We want to do business with you guys. We want to rebuild with you. Ukraine will be rebuilt. Ukraine will rise and Russia will not. Russia will become a third world country. That's what's going to happen. Whoa. Reducing a country that was once an active threat to the United States and other countries to third world status? That's cold. That's my opinion, but I don't see any other outcome. They will be sanctioned and they're going to be para. I mean, they'll be disconnected from the rest of the world. It's the biggest country on the planet and it's going to be a third world country. So is the security cooperation around Ukraine something that we might build upon? We have CISA in the United States and we've got these different entities around the world, but they all seem to be coming together around Ukraine. Might there be an elevation of that after the war has ended? that we continue to see this type of protection around the world? Mm. Well, we can hope. Um, we can hope. I think we tend to come together in extraordinary situations. And in, during normal times, we tend to our own businesses and we work with our own en entities and our own uh, societies. We can hope, but uh, I wouldn't be holding my breath. I'd really like to thank my friend, Miko Hupinen, for taking the time during the RSA conference to talk to me about the online war in the Ukraine and his new book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. It's available for pre-order now from John Wiley and Sons, and will be available in the U.S. starting at Black Hat USA in August. Given his many talks, I can only imagine this book will be a must-have for all InfoSec practitioners. And the work that Miko does continues. Meeting with European governments, strengthening our defenses online, is yet another critical role he plays within our community. If you hadn't heard of Miko before this podcast, I strongly recommend going back and watching on YouTube some of his talks over the years. They're funny, they're insightful, and they're based on real hands-on first-person experience. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative information security podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free by For All Secure. For the Hacker Mine, I remain the original smart but vulnerable Robert Vimosi.